if you like that organ music, it is not a homage intentionally to Knives Out, Glass Onion, yeah, the movie, right. movie on Netflix that's out. It's actually, um, we've had that before the movie came out, Bach's Little Fugue in G minor. is chosen simply because it's one of my favorite pieces. Um, that organ piece was played at my ordination, and I've always loved it, but now it's popular because of the Daniel Craig movie that is out. And we're glad that you're with us um, my name is Father Steve Rice. I'm with Father Luke Klingstead, and we are doing a new version of our formation podcast, which we hope will expand to be beyond just a recap of our Wednesday night formations called Rubrics. Rubrics in the liturgies, in the missals, in the prayer books are the instructions. They are entitled Rubrics because they were printed in red. And so it tells us how to do the acts of faith. And so the point of this podcast is to talk about our faith and to go deeper about how we are to live it practically, but to go deeply theologically um, and to touch on all the things that that, um, that impact us as, as Christians. And um, I imagine that as we get better at this, we have new microphones, we have a camera, and we are not trained, we're not professionals, we're not polished, we're sort of making this up as we go along. They don't teach you this in seminary. They don't teach us this in seminary, which in a, in a, in a way is what sort of ministry in the Christian life is about. You have a vision, you trust, you go forward, and you learn and you get better. That's right. Um, and so we imagine this might expand to, to involve other topics, other guests, because frankly, we have extraordinary conversations during the day. We talk about the Bible and our faith and prayer all the time, and frequently we have commented, if only we had a microphone and could That's record right. this, That's right. people might benefit from it. And, you, and for an example, we were talking about this just yesterday. So today is Wednesday, January 18th, the Confession of St. Peter, and yesterday morning, Father Luke and I had a multitude of experiences just before lunch. Just to give you an example of kind of the things that we can touch on and and what we do at this church is um, after we had morning prayer and mass at 8 and 8.30, we went to Novant Hospital to pick up a 36-week-old baby that was a live birth that died. Uh, the child's mother is uh, experiencing homelessness, so that added a complication that we needed to be the one to actually pick up the baby from the morgue. So we went to the hospital, we went to the house supervisor's office, we went to the morgue, we had an experience there with staff members, and, and, and just we were, we, we were dressed in our cassocks, and people sort of view us as a part of the furniture, and mm-hmm. we get to see a side of, of, of that life that one doesn't normally see, and then we went to the funeral home and saw another side um, that we don't normally get to see. And then before we had lunch, we were um, with Lee Tolberry, a parishioner, who is a vital member of the City with Dwellings team. Mm-hmm. She showed us a preview of their new facility that I think the grand reveal is this week, this Friday. this Friday. And it's an extraordinary space with the amazing work that they're doing that we've partnered with for a decade now. And that was all before lunch. Yeah. You know, hospitals, funeral home, morgue, uh, homeless shelter, um, all before we had, all, all before we were able to break bread. And so the Christian life, um, and we experience this as clergy, gives us access to every aspect of life. Mm-hmm. Nothing is untouched. And, and that certainly translates to our faith. Our faith is portable, and that the things that we read in Holy Scripture and the traditions of the church, 
Prepare us, form us, empower us, and send us to every part of what it means to be a human being. And the more we learn and the deeper we go, the richer that experience becomes mm -hmm. because we are able to process and see and understand and relate all these experiences through Jesus Christ, which is where we find our, our hope. And as Paul famously wrote to Timothy, life that really is life. So I think this is a wonderful thing. I hope you'll subscribe and, um, and keep tuning in. And I think that uh, I'll say if you have a topic or a question that you would actually like us to discuss above and beyond what we are normally doing, let us know. I think we'll be very interested to, to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, emails are on our website and we're, we're always ready to hear from people. So send that in. Well, today is January 18th, which is the Feast of the Confession of St. Peter. And so that is what we will spend our time talking about. If you're new to this format, um, Father Steve and I will basically begin with Scripture, and then we will move to, you know, briefly touching on tradition and reason. So beginning with Scripture, being formed by it, and then um, we'll, we'll basically look at what, what does tradition say about the Confession of St. Peter, and, and what are some questions or reasonable topics or discussions that emerge from this. So to begin with, I'll, I'll open us with the colic for the Confession of St. Peter. Let us pray. Almighty Father, who didst inspire Simon Peter, first among the apostles, to confess Jesus as Messiah and Son of the living God, keep thy church steadfast upon the rock of this faith, that in unity and peace we may proclaim the one truth and follow the one Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. So to begin with, we'll just simply look at the gospel for um, the confession of, of St. Peter, which is Matthew 16, and that will kind of, I'm sure, springboard us into all sorts of other scriptural conversations. Um, but we'll specifically look at Matthew 16, 13 through 19. So I'll go ahead and read that and then um, give you a chance to just say what first jumps out with you, because there's there's a lot going on in these in these few. And verses. what translation are you using? I'm using the NRSV. That's and, a good point. And I will be using the RSV. So he's using the New Revised Standard Version, mm -hmm. which came out I think in 1989, and I'm using the older version, um, the Revised Standard, which came out I think in the early 50s. Yes, and largely the same. But you know, if we read the same verse, he might have a, a, a thou, and, and and I might have a, a you or um, your and. But, you know, very, very similar. So, again, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here we have an uh, encounter with Jesus and the disciples. And, and the first thing that always sticks out to me is that they, they're kind of distanced from the crowds. I mean, they go into the district of Caesarea Philippi, kind of away from where they have been, and, and they have this conversation. 
And what stands out to you first when you when you read this encounter? Well, the first thing that I mean, there's there's a lot here. Um, the first thing that actually comes out to me is the question, "But who do you say that I am?" Mm-hmm. And immediately that that brings to mind the fact that the faith in our faith in Jesus Christ is something that we ourselves have to assume the responsibility for. Yeah. Um, you know, when we are baptized, assuming we're baptized as children, as babies, our parents, our godparents take these vows on our behalf. They promise to nurture us in the faith. But at some point in our life, and this is what confirmation does, we have to answer that question, but who do you say that I am? And even though our faith in the church, our faith is rooted in the church and is sustained by the church, and we, um, you know, it's the body of Christ, it's a corporate life, there is that individual affirmation, which is so very important. Who do you say that I am? And um, that question is vital to, to every Christian, and we see it here given first to uh, to the disciples who were there. And again, they were they were acknowledging what everyone else says. Some people, mm-hmm. they are saying, that's all well and good, um, but what about you? That's the first thing, and that always penetrates to the heart of, uh, of my meditation of, am I able to always give an account for my faith? Who do I say that Jesus Christ is? Not academically, mm-hmm. not intellectually, but the Lord of my life. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for me? Yeah, I really like how Jesus is almost encouraging them and setting the stage. Who do people say that I am? Now, who do you say that Correct. I am? I mean, what he's doing is, is kind of... Um, not letting them have the people's answer as their own. Because he asked them first, who do people say that I am, but who do you say that I am? Kind of forcing them to say, I'm supposed to have a different answer here. Um, yes. The people are saying the prophets, the people are saying Elijah, but who do you, and, and Peter obviously is the one to to step up and say, you are the Messiah, not a Messiah, not a salvific figure, but the son of the living God. Um, and obviously... Jesus's response we'll spend some time on, but but Simon's you know declaration of not 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 one of the the prophets that we have been hoping for, not one of the sons of the divine, which actually gets used in the Old Testament. No, this is the Son of God, the singular focus of our salvation. Um, what, what's interesting is he, the people who say some John the Baptist, yeah. some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. It wasn't as if they were reporting that people were saying, you are, as we see elsewhere, you are, you know, son of Beelzebub, or yeah. you are, you are, you know, anti-God. Yeah, these are They were getting answers. close. I mean, right. they were, they were, they were groping for the truth and they knew that he was something, but they did not know exactly who he was. Mm-hmm. So let's get into Jesus's answer. Um, right off the bat, I want to make a, a brief point when Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, um, but I saw St. John Chrysostom note that this is a unique, um, you know, declaration, son of Jonah, because there's there's two other passages in John's gospel, actually, John 142 and John 21:15, where we have a statement about um, Peter's, Simon's father. And those translations... Almost all translations um, translate it accurately as son of John. Um, and again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I, I actually printed out the words used. So 142, 
when, when he is called son of John, that that is John. And then 2115 of John, and then Matthew 1617, this is actually a different word, a different name, um, and it's Jonas, uh, and it says it's of Chaldee origin, um, son of Jonas, bar Jonas, an Israelite. I mean, this is a technically incorrect statement about his, his um, patrimony. This is not his father's name. Now, you know, some scholars, um, and, and it's too much to get into, will say, well, they were used interchangeably, and that might be true. I'm not, I'm not a scholar. I'm not going to take a stance here. What I want to note is that there's actually a symbolic or theological meaning that could be drawn out from this. Um, Jonah in Hebrew means, you looked this up the other day, mm-hmm. it means dove. Um, so you could absolutely interpret this as Jesus saying, I know your actual dad's name is John, but now after you've made this declaration, you are the son of the dove, almost the son of the spirit. And then he kind of bolsters this interpretation by then saying, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So Peter is almost receiving, he's already had a name change. Now he's receiving almost a new identity um, lineage-wise. Now he is the son of the divine. He has been given the divine wisdom that has allowed to make him, to make this declaration. So son of John, Son of Jonah, um, they might be interchangeable. They're clearly different words, um, but I think there's a theological point to be made that even Jesus's language very well could be intentional in trying to highlight that Peter's declaration is not an ordinary thing that we've reasoned our way to that comes with divine revelation. Oh, absolutely, and, and there's several points to make. I mean, one, we have to recognize, now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar yeah. either, nor am I a Greek scholar. I can drive around a college campus and point out what the yeah. fraternities are. But beyond that, that's what my two semesters in seminary provided for me. So they spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, mm-hmm. more likely. The Gospels were written in Greek. So we have Hebrew language conveyed through the Greek, yeah. translated into English. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's inaccurate. It just means we have to recognize that is the case. A lot but of decisions made along the way. A lot of decisions steps. had to be made. But we also see in John... I, I'm, almost certain it's John's gospel. You mentioned fathers having different names. Now, we we know, for instance, in our own lives, we give nicknames all the time, but even in the gospels, do you remember what what was the name of um, the father of James and John, the nickname? The Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder, right? So Zebedee, also Sons of Thunder. Um, You know, Thomas had another name, Didymus. Didymus, which is a twin. Yeah, and I yeah. think, is that the Greek yeah. versus, versus the Aramaic? So it's, it's, I mean, Peter has it's four not, names. It's right. It's uh, not uncommon. Cephas, Simon, Peter. Yeah, it's not uncommon at all um, to have to have the variation of name. And yeah. the other thing to think about is, so this is why I mentioned New Revised Standard versus, versus Revised Standard, because yours says, son of Jonah. Mine says, bar Jonah. There you go. Yeah. And we, this is not, uh, we know this, that bar means son. Mm-hmm. For instance, Osama bin Laden, yeah. in Osama son of Laden. Mm-hmm. We also see this again in John's Gospel at the at the scene with Pilate, where Jesus is being uh, before Pilate, and people are asked who Pilate asked the crowds, "Who do you want?" Mm-hmm. And they wanted Barabbas yeah. released. What is Barabbas? But Bar Abbas or Bar Abba, son of the Father, yeah. which is a which is a whole different place to go down. So that right. that play on son of mm-hmm. is consistent in, in certainly Matthew and John, so son of the Spirit. And that, again, makes more sense, I think, when you look at chapter 16 as a whole in context. And 
One of the things that obviously we will recommend is that whenever you're reading any portion portion of Scripture, always read it in a larger context. Yeah. Read the whole chapter. Read the chapter before, the chapter after. See what's going on. So what's happening in this is that at the end of chapter 15, we have the feeding of uh, the breaking of the loaves and fish mm-hmm. and, and, and feeding the multitudes. Then chapter 16 begins with the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to test Jesus and asking to... Sh- asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Mm-hmm. And then he chastises them and says, you you know how to predict the weather because you can look at the sky and see what it's going to be, so on and so forth, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times, perhaps saying that it's right in front of you and you have, you have closed your eyes to the truth that is right in front of you. And he says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. Now, two things maybe so to think good. about is that maybe what he's saying is that uh, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Yeah. A faithful generation trusts in the revelation that's always around us. Right. And then the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Again, I think that could be at least two things. We know Jonah in the Old Testament. Uh, the the reluctant prophet to the mm-hmm. city of Nineveh, who was in the in the belly of the of the fish for three days, yep. a clear sign of right. Jesus being in the grave in the tomb, so a sign of resurrection, the sign of Jonah, but also um, that is the sign that he mentions, and now we have Bar Jonah, mm-hmm. the son of Jonah, yep. son of the Spirit, meaning that what um, the sign from heaven is now a transformed life, yeah. making this this confession, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, Christ, Messiah, um, mean the same thing, the Anointed One, the mm-hmm. Savior. Yeah, the sign is the Holy Spirit. Yes. I mean, that, is, that is given to all of us. And, and you see it given to Jesus first, and then actually later to the apostles, and, and there's a clear you know link between what Peter receives here, and then what all of the disciples receive, the, the power to forgive sins when they receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is the sign. Yes, and we saw this uh, two weeks ago with the baptism of our yeah. Lord on that theophany of right. the public proclamation of Jesus Christ. This is my Son, the Beloved, and there, again, the Trinitarian theophany. God the Father speaks, God the Son is in the water, God the Holy Spirit descends, mm-hmm. Jonah as a dove on, on, on our Lord. So two more signs or Im- images in this that I want to get to before we move on to tradition and reason. And one is the keys. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then the other one is this um, this binding and loosing language. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So let's start with the keys. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, we will obviously touch on this when we get to tradition. But scripturally, um, how do you see this? How do you see this working? Well, I think that the first place we have to go is Isaiah 22. Okay. And um, forgive me for not having it memorized, <laughs> but if you know, for instance, in the in Advent, as we lead up to the Nativity, we have those antiphons mm-hmm. for the Magnificat um, on the on the on the days leading up to the Nativity. The O antiphons, and one of them is O Key of David. Yeah. So in Isaiah 22, in um, verse 22. Um, Isaiah the prophet, he says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. 
And so we have this image of this key of authority that, um, and the key of David. So we have in this, in this, in this line of, 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 um, of King David, the Davidic line, this symbol of authority mm-hmm. that can open and close. And so traditionally the church has viewed this as, along with binding and loosing, is the authority of the church. And again, I think this makes sense better when we read the chapter in context and what was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees from verse 5 to 12 in chapter 16. Jesus is telling his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Mm -hmm. Pharisees and Sadducees. And what the disciples were doing is because, remember in chapter 15, it ended with the feeding of the multitudes by the multiplication of the loaves. They were assuming that Jesus was talking about the bread. So don't eat the bread that they are eating. And and, and he has to tell them plainly uh, in verse 11, how is it that you fail to perceive that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, meaning um, the teaching. And he says, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so then immediately after that, we now have, I will build, on you I will build my church, Mm -hmm. and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and then you can bind on earth, will be bound in heaven, and whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven, is in is in contrast to the to the harmful leaven of the Pharisees and mm-hmm. the Sadducees. This is the authority of preserving the faith and teaching the faith and conveying the faith, but also the authority of, of forgiving sins. And we'll talk about this in a moment, but the ideas of keys are sort of opening up heaven, yeah. but also, in, or locking away hell, yep. um, or um, opening up hell. Yeah. And locking yeah, up heaven. Which is what Jesus does in the harrowing of hell. I mean, Correct. Un- Burst open the doors. Correct. I also think there's an interesting point to be made. Just think about your personal experiment, experience. Um, I don't know I don't know if, if your wife does this, but mine will, will ask me um, at various points you know, throughout the week, did you lock the door before we go to bed? I mean, there's a almost a responsibility there that yep. if, if you were the one with the keys, you, you protect the boundaries of this house. Um, you keep those inside safe from from you know whatever may be outside, but you also you know keep those things outside that you don't want in. I mean, th- there is a responsibility in, in that as well, and so the responsibility is given to to Peter, and then you know by extension to to all bishops that to be a a bishop is to have a responsibility to protect the church, to keep those within the church safe from the threats outside. Absolutely, and I think. I always come back uh, to the fundamental principle and the fundamental question that human beings have to Mm -hmm. wrestle with and ultimately answer is one of authority. Under what authority am I going to submit myself? And orthodoxy, when we talk about the teaching of the church and orthodoxy, often people will uh, assume that we're talking about authoritative demands on people's lives and the opposite of freedom. It's actually what freedom is. Mm -hmm. And the best description I ever heard of what orthodoxy does is it defines the boundaries. Yeah. And it's and so if this is your front yard and you have small children, if you have a fence in that yard, you can tell them you play as hard as you want to. That's and right. you go to every corner that you yeah. want to. And there are no limits to where you can run within these boundaries. Protective but, boundaries. But they're not to keep you from from exploring the world. They're to keep you from being hit by the car yeah. on the road or the dog that is not yeah. kept up by its owner. It's to keep you safe. Yeah. Uh, it's complete freedom because you don't have to worry 
about being devoured, right. as St. Peter says, by you know, the devil roaring around like a lion mm-hmm. seeking someone to devour. And so I think that's a more that's, uh, it's the, it's the correct way to view the church's authority. Correct. And what we have here, instead of the Pharisees and Sadducees and others, and it's not just an attack on the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're the, the example that was in front of them, but of any influence that's going to invite us to go to a place where we might be hurt. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, put it bluntly, the world's a scary place. Completely. Um, the, the world has spiritual forces and spiritual forces of darkness and, and temptations and, and demons, and, and th- those things exist, which is why we long for heaven where those things don't exist so that fences aren't even needed anymore. Correct. Because there is no place where, where harm can come to you. But here on earth, that church is that that fence, is that protection. And that kind of brings us to the binding and loosing language and a point I want to make about that protection from the spiritual forces of darkness. As I was kind of looking at um, the Gospel of Matthew and even commentaries on the Gospel of John where this binding and loosing language um, shows up as well, I came across um, J. Ramsey Michael. He's, a, he's written a, a commentary on the Gospel of John um, years and years ago, and, and he actually made a helpful point for me and it's a good reminder for those trying to, you know, study the scriptures. Um, the New Testament is always using language from the Old Testament. Jesus, you know, exists in that context. And this is something I never thought of. But the binding and loosing language was written um, or spoken of by rabbis in their rabbinic literature a lot. And so a lot of people go there and say, well, what do the rabbis say about this? Well, there is a problem with that. It was written two, three hundred years after the life of Jesus. So... You know, it'd be like looking at a history book from 2040 to look at the context of what we're talking about today. No, you would want to look at something that was, you know, an English language book that was written before us. So um, the rabbis, you know, hundreds of years later kind of say, well, the, the disciples are given powers to basically break people of their vows. I mean, that's what they're talking about. Just remove the responsibility from people. Well, if you actually look at the Second Temple period, this is what um, the scholar Michaels is, is, is talking about. It's actually a different context, and it's really interesting. He says, and in, in Second Temple, it's just you know pseudepigraphal books, um, the the apocryphal books, um, and he actually brings out Tobit a lot. Um, it's it's protection against spiritual forces. It's exactly what we're talking about right now. So one of the things that he says is, anytime this binding and loosing emerges in the scriptures, um, it seems more helpful to view it as something about protection against wickedness. Um, and so one of the one of the References he actually brings out explicitly, and, and I've, I had to type it up here because uh, one detriment of many NRSV translations, or at least mine, does not have the Apocrypha. But Tobit 317, um, and this is you know one of these Second Temple texts, actually says um, this exact same word, this, this whatever you bind on earth, that same bind word is used. And it's, here's 317, and Raphael was sent to heal the two of them to scale away the white films from Tobit's eyes to give Sarah, the daughter of Raguel, Raguel, in marriage to Tobias, the son of Tobit, and to bind Asmodeus, the evil demon. And that's that same word, and in the context here in Tobit, it's to bind the evil demon. And I think it even shows up um, in the Psalms where, you know, who can bind Leviathan or draw him out with a fish hook? But I think that actually helps us understand what is Peter being given here? Well, he's being, give, being given power and the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's being given responsibility, but he's also being given a promise that the world's a scary place, demons abound, but the power of the church rests in the authority of Jesus Christ, and 
you will be able to bind all the evil demons. I mean, the church has authority over the spiritual forces of wickedness. This is not a, this is not an evil, uh, even battle between, you know, us and the works of the devil. I mean, the, the church triumphant exists to demonstrate that power. So it's, this is somewhat off topic. What is interesting about the reference to Tobit, I didn't, I had forgotten that one, is the remedy for Tobit's yeah. blindness was um, excrement from a bird. Is it excrement from a bird? Is it also fish guts? I, it, well, I, know, I know the bird. So if yeah. you're talking about sort of Bar-Jonah, yeah, know, there you know, sort go. of something coming from, from, from heaven there you go. is interesting. Um, final comment I want to make on authority and binding and loosing. And I think this is a, an important way to look at the authority of church to proclaim absolution and to mm-hmm. withhold it, is if we are guilty of sin... There are two things. There are two. There are often two approaches that that sinners have. One is to never allow forgiveness to permeate yeah. their soul, even though they. And this is the power of going to a confessor and being honest about your sins, and being vulnerable, and then hearing, "God forgives you. Yeah. God loves you." That is extraordinarily powerful, uh, and it those who make their confession understand the levity in your walk once you leave that that moment of confession because you feel this weight lifted from you. It's not that you can't ask God to forgive you. It's just that you may not believe God forgives you unless you hear someone authoritative from the church. Mm -hmm. Um, Assuming you are truly, you know, repentant, proclaim that absolution. Likewise, the other option or the other approach is to not wreck it or to think that the sin is not that bad and yeah. keep persisting in it and keep harming yourself and others until someone says with authority, no, that's not okay. Yeah. For your own for your own soul and your right. own safety and those of others, that's not okay. Yeah, this is uh, the that's the know. binding and loosing. So that would, that's not that's not that's not okay. Yeah, this is the you know, image of a parent telling their kids Correct. stop, stop, trust me. This isn't good for you. That, per, that that keeps us from from um, trying to abuse grace, that cheap yeah. grace. That I can do what I want to. Mm-hmm. I'll just ask God to forgive me. Yep. I think a lot of people have that that uh, attitude toward yeah. the church and toward forgiveness. And and these keys keep us from our save us from ourselves from abusing yeah. that grace. And and I think for a lot of people, the hard part in that conversation is that it is theologically true. God will always forgive you. But when, what, what, ha- what ends up happening, at least you know, in my experience, is when you say, I can do it, God will forgive me, what you mean is the sin isn't that big of a deal. Correct. If you actually believe that the sin is a big deal, yes, God will forgive you, but you will not persist in it because it, it is that damage internally that, that you're causing yourself. Or at I mean, least you will not want to persist in yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we always slip up. Yeah. But you know, to say, I can do this, God will forgive me, nine times out of ten ends up meaning it's not that big of a deal. And that's just not not true and that is not for our own protection well that goes back to your homily on sunday is the sin of presumption we yeah. do not presume and yeah. and so i yes i think that's one of the pastoral um important reasons why mm-hmm. the keys were given to peter and by extension not just to peter but to the disciples the apostles and now as we believe their successors the um the bishops and um, I'm gonna borrow your prayer book. I, yeah. I know that when we did the mass this morning, when we the preface for the apostles, it would 
we use the one from the from the old missal. I imagine it's similar in the in the seventy nine prayer book. Talks about the shepherds that continue to yeah. um, to keep us safe and to and to guard the faith, uh, which I, is just a beautiful preface. And I know that whenever I use that preface, I do think about our bishops, mm-hmm. and I do I do intentionally pray for them, and knowing that they have a very difficult task. And there are lots of pressures that are moving them to, to stray. Here it is. Through the great shepherd of your flock, Jesus Christ our Lord, who after his resurrection sent forth his apostles to preach the gospel and to teach all nations and promise, them, promise to be with them always, even into the end of the ages. The old missal has much stronger, stronger language yeah. about um, shepherds guiding and protecting and preserving mm-hmm. the faith. So for, for our second half, let's move to tradition and reason. Um, and and I think we'll we'll have some nice conversations about what it is the the bishops exist to do um, when Jesus is on this rock I will build my church. Um, a lot of the early church fathers, you know, obviously there's a play on words. Peter means rock, um, but what is the rock of Peter? Well, it's his confession. I mean, that is the the kind of gateway to this this blessing of Peter. And so the bishops exist and and are even, you know, their own. Life um, only is built on this this rock of the confession of Jesus Christ, and so <clears throat> we are always using you know this this confession of the Son of God to kind of you know hold up to the church, even hold up to our bishops. Um, one example is is I was able to travel down to Central Florida to to vote in a election of a new bishop, and and you know we hopefully everyone else like me prayed beforehand and, and showed up being willing to be be led by the spirit but but I also you know was able to make a decision of these candidates and and part of that decision was looking at this confession and saying who do I trust to safeguard this confession of faith who do I trust yeah. to maintain this confession that you are the Christ the son of the living God and everything else flows from that and that is part of Part of that tradition that the bishops exist to safeguard that rock, that confession. So, for tradition, um, how about you start explaining this this painting? And I'm going to actually pull it up here on the screen if you're watching the the video of this podcast. But this is a painting in the Sistine Chapel. Sistine Chapel by Pietro um, Perugino, 15th century. And if you're listening, we hopefully, if we are smart enough, we'll have a link in some part That's of this right. podcast where you can. <laughs> You can um, look at it or just let Google be your friend and, and um, Google delivery of the keys, Sistine Chapel, mm-hmm. and that will show you the Perugino um, painting. It's likely you've seen it before if you have any familiarity with Christian art. It is on, I believe, the north wall of the Sistine Chapel. The Sistine Chapel, of course, was the chapel built by Pope Sixtus, hence Sistine Sixtus. And it was his private chapel. And now, of course, it's famous for two things. One is the the wonderful Michelangelo mm-hmm. ceiling. So this is not a Michelangelo. This is a, a Perugino. Michelangelo did the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. An extraordinary work. I, I love art. I'm an untrained connoisseur of art. I have no idea what I'm looking at half the time, but I know <laughs> I like it. And one of the reasons why I love art, especially from this period, is that these artists, frankly, are among the best theologians because they they speak of the faith in a, in a medium that is accessible to everybody. And mm-hmm. the sophistication of the elements they include always impresses me. 
But um, the Sistine Chapel is also where the papal conclaves are. And to, to continue the theme, um, conclave isn't conclave means with key. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean this is to elect the successor of Peter who holds yeah. the keys. It simply means they're locked in. Yeah, They meet uh, with the key uh, locked in. But there is a, a superstition that whoever, whatever cardinal is seated under this painting is the one that will be elected. Uh, I, I think there have been three that have been elected uh, according to the seating charts of uh, where they are. But this piece of art is famous for lots of reasons, for its composition, for mm-hmm. its perspective. I mean, there's clear foreground, yeah. middle ground, and background and all that. But the one that I want to focus on is is Jesus delivering the keys to Peter. And what and so you see this all the time, frankly. You see this on on heraldry of uh, the Pope, certainly, but also in bishops and yeah. dioceses you will see keys. Lest we think this is purely the province of the Roman Catholic Church, it isn't. Uh, yeah. Keys, I, I, I want to say, I want to say, I'm not sure. Maybe we can Google it while we're here. That the that the the seal of the presiding bishop has a key right. or keys on there um, for the same reason. But one of the keys is gold, and one of the keys is silver mm-hmm. or iron. And one of the interpretations of this is that one of the that it represents binding and loosing or that the gold key represents heaven and the and um Let's see there's a key there is that presiding bishop no it's not presiding bishop and the other key represents the either iron or silver represents uh hades or the gate of hell mm-hmm. so um the point being is that is that um that's what those keys represent. This is also, by the way, why every one of the jokes about St. Peter involve the pearly gates. Mm-hmm. Why the pearly gates? Because he has the key yeah. to the gate. So even if you've, you've never, you were raised in a tradition that didn't, that didn't teach um, um, you know, the absolution of sins given to the church, to the bishops and priests, we understood that to be the case through... Um, through the jokes we would tell, because yeah. Peter's there guarding the gate, deciding who can come in, who, who cannot come in. Have we found anything? I think is that a key? That's a key, right okay. there. So, yeah, completely. So, so yeah, in the presiding you're going to be able shield, to see this on the video. There but. is a there is a there is a crozier and a key. Yeah, you can Google that and, and see it. But I think I think that's a good point. Um, just to briefly say is you know people will uh, may may listen to this or watch this and say two Anglican clergy talking about the primacy of Peter and the keys he holds is a bit ironic. But I, I think. Um, one of the things that we will do is kind of push back on that and say, Rome doesn't have the only ability to talk about Peter. I mean, this is a part of our prayer book tradition. And I actually think um, it's worth noting that the, that the collect we, we prayed um, for today um, actually has Peter, you know, first, of the, first among the apostles. Um, Keep thy church steadfast upon the rock of this faith, that in unity and peace. So, I mean, it is fully within the bounds of, of Anglican theology um, and in our tradition to, to locate Peter as first among the apostles, kind of the, the foundation of this church. Um, and that's not meaning that we're repenting and submitting to the Bishop of Rome. It means that we recognize that the scriptures speak clearly about this. Well, clearly, if you, if you to go even further on the tradition part, there is a document um, by the Archic Commission, the mm-hmm. Anglican Roman Catholic International Consultation, that speaks about reunion yeah. and and remember John 17 that we all may be one at unum sent that is it is sinful to not want to be one correct and to 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 rejoice in division is is sin, sin. 
And um, the Arcot Commission document, this, this, these, are, these are theologians, representatives of both communions that come together to try to work toward reunion based mm -hmm. on agreed statements. So one inch at a time, often we, we focus on what divides and we don't acknowledge what unites. Correct. And then when we focus on what unites, we realize there's maybe oftentimes a lot more that unites yeah, than divides. And so on the document, and this is going from memory, but I know it's there on on reunion or union, it talks about that in the West, we the Anglicans um, have completely understand that the Bishop of Rome will be perhaps the best, the best focus of unity. Yeah. Um, and the primacy of the Bishop of Rome is not necessarily in dispute. The, the question is universal jurisdiction yeah. over the church yeah. in terms of temporal power. Um, I think that if there were a proposal for reunion that would have the Bishop of Rome as the uh, uh, primus inter pares, or first among equals, yeah. much like the ecumenical patriarch right. in the Eastern Church, or frankly like the, the Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury, Canterbury yeah. now, yeah. that we have that these visible signs I of unity. Don't think any. I don't think any reasonable communion yeah. province would have an issue with that. And another way that we have um, that we uh, we recognize Rome, the Bishop of Rome, which is what the Pope is, is that they're in, in the Diocese of Europe, in the Church of England, and in the uh, Episcopal Convocation in Europe, there is no Bishop of Rome. That's right. Yeah. There's one Bishop of Rome. The Episcopal Church, the Anglican Communion, recognizes there is one yeah. Bishop of Rome. Like in North Carolina, we have the Bishop of Raleigh, the Bishop of Wilmington, yeah. the Bishop of Asheville. Mm -hmm. Roman Catholics have the Bishop of Raleigh, they have mm -hmm. the Bishop of Charlotte, um, you know, we have rival Episcopal sees right. all over the place, but not in Rome. Yeah, and frankly, frankly, Roman Catholics, when the hierarchy, Roman Catholic hierarchy, was restored in, in England in the 19th century, they did not have a bishop of yeah. London. There's one there, but it's the bishop of Westminster, mm -hmm. and they recognize there's already a bishop of London. Yeah, yeah. There's always been that. Um Kind of push and pull in those in those visible centers in Rome, in, yeah. in Canterbury, um, um, Constantinople. Um, I mean that that is that has always been part of that. But um, I want to just highlight one quote from an Anglican, and then we can move on to to reason and talking a little bit more about unity to close this out. But E. L. Maskell, a very famous Anglo-Catholic, I think, is helpful in kind of addressing why is it that the bishops are this sign of unity? I mean, why is there so much insistence on apostolic succession, the succession of the apostles. What is it about that that actually helps us see the unity of the church? And one of the things that he says that I think um, really made it click for me is he says, the church is a visible and tangible society, something we can actually put our hands on, but it is a sacramental one. And the organ of its unity will be a sacramental organ. Now, obviously, the, the Eucharist is always called the sacrament of unity. That is what binds the church. But he goes on to say, that is why, as I see it, the apostolic episcopate precisely fulfills the requirements for such an organ, for the episcopal character is conferred by a sacramental act. So what he's saying is that, you know, the, the ordination of bishops, that sacramental nature, um, it is that sacrament that gives us that visible sign of unity. So A, it helps us say, well, regionally, you know, you can point to leaders of the church in specific areas, but sacramentally, 
the church is this sacramental organ, and so its sign of unity is a sacramental one. It's the ordination of these bishops carrying on the, the rock of Peter, that confession of the apostles. And I think that's a helpful way to think about it, that when people say you don't necessarily need bishops, which would go against you know much of church teaching, but the way you actually address why is this helpful is it, it fulfills the, the two requirements. It fulfills the visible sign of unity, and it is a sacramental sign of unity, that ordination and continuation of the apostles' teaching. It's kind of both things in one that speaks to the nature of the church. It's, it's visible and it's sacramental. And it's, and it's scriptural. So yeah. I, for me, I mean, we're not saying that bishops are the only leaders in the church. That's, that, that is not scriptural. Neither of us are bishops. Correct. Yeah. And, and there are all sorts of of folks in the New Testament that Paul addresses mm-hmm. and references that, that aren't bishops. Correct. But we need to remember in Acts chapter 1 that the the apostles had to replace Judas. Yeah. And they did it to fulfill Scripture. Uh, let his let his office let another take mm-hmm. uh, from, from the Psalms. But I've always been struck by this. They had a condition as to who could be yeah. um, the, the successor to Judas. This is chapter this is Acts chapter one, verse twenty-one. So one of the men, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um and it's the idea that, that there was that condition to to know the fullness of the faith, to make that confession. And then I think this is part of the part of the point. They know the, they know Jesus Christ from beginning to end, and then they pass that down. Yeah. Tradition, tra- traditio in Latin means to hand over, yeah. to hand down. And so there is an apprenticeship really among the succession of the of the apostles. And we have very clear this is not a, a late medieval invention of apostolic succession. Yeah. Very clear preservation and insistence on successors to the yeah. apostles. That is passed down, and the sign is the laying on of hands, mm-hmm. and accompanying that sign is the transmission of the faith. We see this clearly where um, where Paul, writing to Timothy... Yeah, he says, bring, my, bring the book, yep. bring the, the coat or the cope. But, but he also um, says, rekindle the gift then, yeah, that I gave you through the laying on of my hands. Yeah. He talks about the faith that Eunice and Lois taught him, the faith that he strengthened, talk, calling him his spiritual son. I mean, it's a beautiful image yeah. of of one one generation forming and passing on the faith to another generation who then in turn will, will pass the faith on to another. So bishops, as much as they, as they are a, a cause of great distress yeah. uh, from time to time, we pray for them, and, and they are absolutely necessary. Um, I forget which church father said that where the bishop is, there is the was church. That, was that Cyprian? Cyprian, maybe? I think. Where yeah. the bishop is, there is the church. Yeah, and kind of, I think the, the good news in all of this, you know, we, we can get intellectual and talk about the bishops and why they matter, and, and that is good news. But the good news, practically speaking, is we we don't just sit in a in a you know, white room and meditate. And that's not the Christian life. No, we have things that we come into contact with. That's why the Eucharist is so impactful, because it is something material that we come into contact with that opens our spiritual senses. And when you have doubts about the church, when you have questions or reservations about, you know, moving us into our our reason, our week of Christian unity, when you have reservations about how does unity 
you know, look and, and where can I look to kind of have that solace that I am in a unified church? You look to the bishops. It's, it's, it's actual people you can, you can touch. Um, and the reason they matter is not because they're all saints. Um, we pray that obviously all of us will become saints, but, but they have been given this office and this sign of the unity of the church. I, I've always found that um, encouraging to me that mm-hmm. we don't just believe that the church is unified through arbitrary, immaterial, you know, ethereal means. No, we actually have these physical things that we can point to. Um, and so when you have your doubts, you can come into contact with something real. When you have a doubt about, you know, your own Christian life, um, you may not remember your baptism, but you remember the laying on of hands at your confirmation. Yep, I absolutely. mean, you can remember that and say there was something that happened there um, and something concrete that I can point to. And I think that's worth remembering. Mm-hmm. So let's close out by talking about the week of Christian unity, um, which I believe started in 1908 by yep. Father Paul Watson. So explain a little bit about the background of that, I guess. It's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful story. It's a simple thing. Paul, Father Paul Watson was a um, priest in, um, in New England, and he, long story short, he was Franciscan Anglican, started some correspondence with uh, an English Roman Catholic priest, and they, just to, in a nutshell, began to uh, pledge to pray for reunion of the mm-hmm. Anglican and Roman communions and form the octave for church unity. And it started out as a... a, a, a a novena, a time of an octave, eight days, not nine, eight days between between the between the two Wednesdays of at least this year of the feast of the confession of Saint Peter and the conversion of Saint Paul. Mm-hmm. Peter and Paul, the two apostles who are responsible for much of the growth of the church, both in teaching and in and starting of churches, and that exploded. Yeah. Um, in 1908. It was so successful that Father Paul Watson converted to the Roman Catholic Church the next year yeah, along go. with his religious community, but, but then it, it developed into the week of prayer for Christian unity among among all Christians. Mm-hmm. And um, what's interesting to me, and I have not done any research whatsoever into the into the history of our of our um, lectionary, of the, of the new lectionary, but the epistle for this Sunday is Paul... Paul's letter to the Corinthians talking about divisions mm. and how awful they are. And it's right in the middle of the octave yeah. um, between between these two great feasts of Saints Peter and Paul. And I think this is something that is very challenging for us because I think we tend to rejoice in our divisions. I think we, we become too provincial, too sectarian. We, we, there's, it's one we like thing, to be special. We like to be special. And there's, there's one thing about having pride in your tradition that's fine. I mean, our, our Greek friends have their Greek festival, and we, yeah. we love it. Uh, and to some degree, we're envious. They have all these yeah. wonderful things. You know, we as, as English Christians or with the English heritage have a lot to take Take holy pride in you yeah. know, choral even song, you know our pastoral practice, all these things that we we enjoy, we appreciate. But to um, it's wrong to say to be like the 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 Pharisee talking about the publican. Mm-hmm. Thank God I'm not like those people, yeah. those Baptists or those Methodists, and and I became. Episcopalian because I don't want to be like yeah. them. Now it's it's one thing to acknowledge theological differences and mm-hmm. to and to have that. But to rejoice and to and to and to um promote division is mm-hmm. harmful to the body of Christ and has no warrant in scripture whatsoever. So even though we we have great divisions in the church, 
And every time a new denomination springs forth, it's a it's a wound to the yeah. body of Christ. We should still pray uh, for um, our Lord's words to be to be realized mm -hmm. that we all may be one. And you know, who knows what happens on that macro level where archbishops and patriarchs get together and mm -hmm. what what they talk about. We can't control that, but we can control on the local level our generosity toward our brothers and sisters, even if we have significant disagreements. Mm -hmm. I think we can be, um, we're striving for ideally the same thing. Yeah. Doesn't mean we're in complete unity. And I think, I think honestly, the way toward unity is to acknowledge with generosity those differences. Yeah. And to say, we're not the same, we disagree, and we acknowledge we have that space and if we acknowledge we have that space, then we can actually be in dialogue about those mm -hmm. disagreements rather than forcing everyone to be the same. Yeah. It's like two children who are fighting. If you, if, if you just want the fighting to stop and you, and you tell them to just hug and make up, that's, that may end the conflict in the moment, yeah. but that's not union. No. The divisions only deepen in that way. And so I think, I think we, can, we can acknowledge the differences but not be happy with them. Mm-hmm. I think a uh, helpful practice for me always is just to simply ask, you know, what are you willing to give up for unity? Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, we don't give up the episcopacy for unity. Correct. I mean, um, one thing that I think is helpful to keep in mind is, is where does this octave for unity begin with? It begins with Peter's confession. I mean, and it ends you, with Peter's confession. And it ends with Peter's confession. Yes, absolutely. You've got to have that as our, our cornerstone. And, and anybody who strays from that, you know, obviously we are now pursuing unity with with the rejection of Peter's confession, that that's actually the rock that makes sure we, we are grounded in the first place. But, you know, you, you look at different cultural expressions of Christianity, and of course, you know, we, we like ours here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, but you travel around the world and you see, you know, changes in how you do things that are all still centered around that confession of Peter um, and centered in the Anglican tradition, just done in a different way. Um, and we have to be willing to kind of look at those people and say, let's, let's come together. I mean, one of the, the way, ways that we've been able to do this is when we took our high schoolers to, to Grand Bahama and went to the cathedral there in Freeport and, and saw a lot of similarities, and, you know, they didn't have a service going on, but if you watch their stream, there's obviously clear differences, yeah. but not enough to... A lot of to, similarities, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, all the similarities are there. It's confession of, of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Messiah, and, and that was a tangible way that we can kind of see that Christian unity across cultures within the Anglican tradition. And obviously this week of Christian unity asks us to expand that prayer to to look at Anglicans and, and Romans and Orthodox and, you know, everything in between. Um, but, yeah, that unity around what? It's around Peter's confession. I mean, that is that is our launching pad. Yeah, and to be, to be frank, I mean, in this parish, I, I have no—I mean, I'm not—we do, we don't— we don't elevate hot button topics. Right. It's not because we don't have thoughts about them or we haven't we don't think about them all the time. Mm -hmm. But the reason why we don't make them the identity of our parish life is because we're working to make that confession what binds us first. Right. If you and I can agree that Jesus Christ that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God, then we can talk about marriage. Yep. We can talk about end of life, beginning of life. Mm -hmm. We can talk about everything under the sun if what we agree on completely is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Absolutely. If we don't agree on that, then then we we have no common vocabulary. Right. There is no common ground to, to move forward. 
we're just talking past one another. Right. So the pastoral role is to is to elevate that confession and to get us on that solid rock, mm-hmm. that stability, so that then we can, with confidence and security, go into these um, issues that were not necessarily foreseen in the New Testament mm-hmm. that we are wrestling with right now. Amen. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation about, obviously, Peter and in, in the rock of his confession um, and launched us into talks about bishops and, and unity and, and all of that. Do you have any final closing thoughts? None. None. No. Well, that makes two of us. Yeah. So <laughs> let us close with the Our Father. Um, thank you for all who have joined us. And if you have, again, any thoughts or questions, feel free to, to send them in. We would love to discuss things that people find uh, interesting and worthwhile. Let us pray. Our Father, who, who art in, in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us all now and forever. Amen. Amen.